It's sure great to be here and welcome to all those who are online. There's a lot here at the church. You need to be here early because you can just get a feel for how excited Brian is. He's almost like a kid at Christmas. We have for the kids. We've got some plans for a new entrance. We're still looking into all of the, the our new building. So lots of incredible things are happening. We've got a Spanish-speaking church that's coming online, so God is alive and well at Little Rock Creek Church. And so there's lots of great things going on, and we want you all to participate and feel and participate in all of those events. So we kind of have this little bit of a space secrets and uh, death defeated. And Brian asked me, he said, can you kind of just prepare everybody's hearts and minds for the resurrection? So I get and I thought, well, maybe the best thing to talk about is something I call the fingerprints of God. Now, if you ever ask Brian, he used to be a policeman, if there's a crime committed, one of the things that they go looking for is fingerprints, right? Because if they find your fingerprints at the crime scene, it generally means you were at the crime scene. So in the has fingerprints. Did you know that? God does that. He leaves his impression. He leaves his fingerprints on the story of the Bible. And I'm going to show you some of those fingerprints today. Those fingerprints will help prepare your mind for Jesus and his resurrection. So one of the very first things that we see in fingerprints is they're always unique, right? All of us have a unique fingerprint unlike anybody else's. And God in the same way has a unique fingerprint, except he doesn't have hands and fingers like we do. His fingerprint is always about his son, Jesus. And so it's amazing as you start to read the Bible, first you become familiar with all the people and the places and the things going on. And the more you continue to read, the more God begins to open up the real story that's occurring. And he's always telling you a story about his son, Jesus, because he loves his son very much. Matthew 28, verse 10, <clears throat> Isaiah tells us, he tells us over and over, one line at a time, one line at a time, a little here and a little there. In other words, he keeps telling you the story a little bit at a time, and he keeps bringing it more and more into focus, so you begin to get a, a picture of what he's doing. And what I found, at least for myself, as I come to understand this story more and more, my faith grows. Now, you're going to have an opportunity in a couple weeks. Generally, on Easter Sunday, you probably get together with friends and family. And maybe the conversation is going to come up. It's like, why do you believe? Well, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe he died was buried and rose again on the third day. That's good to say, but... And I want to give you some of those tools so that you can share, and perhaps if you tell some of your friends and family about the fingerprints of God, it'll help them see, because it's truly amazing what God... of the Bible. And so we're going to look at our very first fingerprint, and it begins very early in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. If you're familiar, this is the story about the fall of man... Adam and Eve had been created. They'd been placed in the garden. They'd been told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan tempts them and allows and gets them, convinces them, really, to, to go ahead and defy God, to disobey him. And as a result, God says some interesting things. He tells some things to the serpent, but the first fingerprint really is on what he tells Eve. He says, <clears throat> I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise Now in that verse, there's two fingerprints. Maybe you see them right. Let me explain the first one to you. This is the first messianic verse, right, that the scholars see in the scriptures where he says, 
unity between you and her seed. You're going, wait a minute. Biblically speaking, if you, if you kind of know anything about the Bible, seed is Sarah. And seed is normally associated and not the woman. So God, there's going to be a seed come through the woman. How can you do that? That's not supposed to be possible. One of the things you are reading the Bible is when it says interesting things. Now, you might not catch that little nuance there about somebody explains that to you, right? But it is kind of of the virgin birth. The other thing that he says, he says, he shall, now that he is the seed of the woman, shall and you will bruise him on the heel. Now, this is in reference to the serpent. Normally, what does a serpent do? They don't bruise you, do they? What do they do? They bite you. But it doesn't say he on the heel. And not only that, what's the order? Because everything in the Bible is and in a particular order. So you want to pay very close attention to that. The very first thing he says is that this coming one, this seed, is going to crush your head, is going to bruise your head, and then it's going to bite him on the heel, or, or bruise his heel. Now, why the reason for that order? The order is because it isn't a not reacting to Satan. In other words, Satan isn't going to do something to the Messiah, and the Messiah then is going to do something to him. What he's saying is, in the plan of God, he knew all along what was going to happen. There was going to be an enemy of mankind, and God was going to, he was going to bruise that enemy on the head, right? And as a result, the reaction that the snake, the serpent, that Satan would have would be to feet of the woman on his heel. And thus we have our first two fingerprints of God. And remember, the fingerprints always point to Jesus Christ. And when we get a little farther in the sermon, I'm going to show you exactly how that works. The next story comes from the story about Abraham in Genesis 15. Really, it starts in Genesis chapter 12. Abram, as his name first starts off, is living over in, in modern-day Iraq in a, in a town called Ur of the Chaldeans. He then gets a vision from God and comes to the land of Canaan. He uproots his home, moves from where he's seen. Now, you've got to remember, at that time, most people didn't travel very far from their home. He's traveled a great distance to a place where there are no relatives, nobody that he knows. He that he has come, become familiar with in the hope of God is who's calling him. As a result of when he goes to Canaan, God promises him several things. The first thing he says, Abram, you're going to become a great nation. You're going to have a great name. You're going to have possession of the land, a great deal of land, as a matter of fact. You're going to have a son, which he doesn't have, and he's very old to begin with. And he says, all nations are going to be blessed by you. Now, you kind of get that from Genesis 12, Genesis 15, which I think is one of the most remarkable chapters in all of the Bible. So we'll just briefly look at a couple verses about what's happening in that story. In verse 4, it says, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir. This is another child. From your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside, and he says, Now look to the heavens and count the stars, if you were able to count them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. Then he, that's Abram, believed in the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. We're going to talk about that statement, what it, what it means to be credited as righteous by God and how that happens. But the very first thing that he says is, you're going to get a son. And Abram is advanced in age, and so he knows that he wants to have an heir because he's a very wealthy man. And God is promising him a number of things. And the very first thing he's promised is this son. 
Then he continues on in this chapter in verse 7. He says, and he said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess it. But he said, Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said, give me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought these to him and cut them in two and laid each of them opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Now, this seems kind of like a peculiar story, right? God tells Abraham, how do I know that what you're telling me is really true? And so God says, what I want you to do is take some animals and I want you to cut them up. To us, that seems a little bizarre, right? We only cut up animals when we're slaughtering them for, for food. But in the ancient times, they didn't have lawyers. So the question becomes, how do you bind an agreement so that neither party can get out of it. And this is an amazing story. I wish the Bible about this because this is really revelatory. It's called the blood covenant. And so what would happen in the ancient times is you would cut these animals and then both parties would walk among the animals. If you've ever been to a seen like a three-year-old heifer, that's a lot of blood. And there's a ram and a, and a goat. There's a ton of blood. And so what happens is you're covered with blood. And what you're basically committing to, you're saying, may this be done if I break my end of the bargain, right? In other words, you're guaranteeing your life that your word is good. Quite a commitment. Then the story goes on, and he says, now when the sun was going down, this is verse 12, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Now, it doesn't tell you why that happens, but I'll tell you why. It's because he's about to make a blood covenant with the Lord God Almighty. And God has told him, he says, Abram, I want you to walk uprightly. Can you imagine if God made a covenant with you and you said, I'll, I'll guarantee it with my life, that I won't do, ever do anything bad? Abram is scared, very scared, at the consequence of making a blood covenant with God Almighty. Now, an interesting thing happens. Then God said to Abraham, he says, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. If you're familiar with the story of Exodus, God is foretelling 400 years before it happened that he knows everything that's going on and he has everything in control. Always important to see how God works. And finally then, in verse 17 and 18, he says, Now it came about when the sun had set, so now we're in darkness, right? <clears throat> it was very dark, and behold, a smoking oven and a flaming torch appeared, which passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, Abram is put into a deep sleep. He thinks he's going to walk among the animals with the Lord and make a blood covenant, but God puts him out. Now, there's an implication to this story. God is saying, right, by making a blood covenant, not only will I uphold my end of the bargain, but if you're not faithful, if you don't fulfill your end of the bargain, guess what? I'll die on that occasion as well. That's remarkable. And that's called the unilateral covenant, right? The blood covenant between Abram and his Lord. Abram evidently wakes up from this sleep. He's pretty excited probably about all of the prospects of what God has promised him, and he really, really, really wants a son. I don't think there's probably anything greater that Abraham looks forward to besides having a son. But it doesn't happen. And he waits, and it doesn't happen. 
So if you make a blood covenant, because as far as Abram was concerned, he made a blood covenant. He didn't understand probably that this is unilateral. What do you start to do? Well, if things aren't moving, you make things happen yourself. So Sarah is not becoming pregnant, so Sarah gives him uh, her handmaiden, Hagar. He goes into Hagar and has a son named Ishmael. Was he supposed to do that? No, but he does, right? We all have failings whenever we come into contact with God. Finally, Abram, after I think he's 100 years old now, God finally gives him a son. And so he's very proud of Isaac. That's, you know, that's the apple of his eye. He would do anything for Isaac. But the Lord has other plans. <clears throat> and he tells um, Abram, but Sarah will bear you a son and you shall name him Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So this is interesting. God promises that Isaac will be the heir of the everlasting covenant. What was the covenant for all the land, all of the nations, all of those things? So that's always in the back of Abram's mind. It's like, my son Isaac is going to inherit everything that I've been given. But then a problem arises, and not really a problem, but an interesting story in Genesis 22. We're probably all familiar with this story. God then in verse 2 says, he says, tells Abram, take now your son your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. We're going to find two more fingerprints of God in that particular passage. The first one is he says, take your son, your only son. Did Abram, Abraham only have one son? No, he had two sons. He had Ishmael through Hagar and he had Isaac through Sarah. So how does God say, your son, your only son? It's interesting how God looks at this, right? And it's, all of this is designed to make you ask questions. You're supposed to be, something doesn't seem right. Whenever you come across that, rejoice greatly because you're about to discover something amazing. God in the story of the Bible will sometimes contort the very words of the Bible to get it to force the story so that you can see. And it, like I said, it's designed so that you see that and you begin to question it. So he says, your son, your only son, because Isaac is what? The son of the promise, right? And that becomes vitally important in our story and our fingerprint. The other thing he says, I want you to go to the land of Moriah. Where's the land of Moriah? Well, if you're familiar with uh, biblical geography at all, it's basically the, the area where the Temple Mount is. So somewhere around the area where the Temple Mount stood thousands of years later, Abram, Abraham journeys with his son Isaac, and he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac. In verse 6, though, just as Abram <clears throat> um, gets ready to ascend the mount, and it's very interesting in that story too. If you look at verse 6, he says, Abram took wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. He took it in his hand, in, he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked up the mountain together. Now, again, you may not notice this, but who carries the wood up the hill? His son Isaac. Again, an interesting point. Abraham is a very wealthy man. He had donkeys and burrows. He had beasts of burden. He didn't need to have anybody carry this up. But only two people go up the mountain together, Abraham and his son Isaac. And Isaac, his beloved only son, is the one carrying the wood for his sacrifice. In verse 7, 
Isaac speaks, well, as Abram proceeds to get the sacrifice ready, I'm sure little Isaac was a little bit confused, right? He brings up all the sticks that he's been carrying, they lay it on an altar, and all of a sudden now his father Abraham picks up his son and puts him on the wood. And I'm sure Isaac is going, hey, this isn't right, right? Something's a little strange here. In fact, verse 7, he says, Isaac speaks to his father and says, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abram said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Now that's kind of peculiar, isn't it? Why would God, why would Abram say, God's going to provide the sacrifice? When he knew good and well, what? That God had asked him to sacrifice his own son. Something was going on in Abraham's mind. And what was it that was going on in Abraham's mind? If you read Hebrews 11, it will tell you. Abraham realized that God is always faithful. And if God says, Isaac is going to have children, right? And their children are going to have children. And he asked me to sacrifice Isaac. Then God has to be the God of resurrection. So we get another hint and another fingerprint. And in that story, right, we get about things that God is telling us. And again, it'll make sense when we go and reveal all of these points of that. Sometimes you can't see it when you're going this way, but when you turn around and look back, you can see all these fingerprints of God and what it is that he's doing. Now we change stories once again. We're going to look at the story of Israel and the Exodus. In that story, Israel has now been captive for 400 years, just as Abraham, as God had prophesied to Abraham. At this point now, God is going to bring forth a redeemer, right? A deliverer to save them and release them from their bondage. Pharaoh hears about the fact that the Jews believe in a deliverer, that it's been told to them for a long time, and he begins to become worried about the nation of Israel right, the Jewish people, because they become very numerous and he's afraid of them. He figures at some point they might rise up and overthrow Egypt. But God is about to continue to bring his story more and more into focus through this relationship with Israel and Egypt. God made a promise to Abraham long ago and he's about to keep it. So this young boy named Moses is about to be killed by Pharaoh. He's placed in a river Pharaoh's uh, sister pulls him out of the river, raises him as his own. He grows up in the house of Pharaoh, right? But he comes to understand that he's a Jew and he doesn't want any part of Egypt. So he ends up slaying an Egyptian who is trying to to whip uh, an Israelite. And as a result, Pharaoh forces him out of Egypt. And he goes into hiding, basically, or into... He escapes it, goes to Midian, which is in the land of... of, um, Saudi Arabia, right, if you will, and he's there for 40 years while God is trying him and testing him and getting him prepared for the mission that he's going to perform. While he's there, he notices a strange mountain in that area, right, called Sinai. And Sinai sometimes is lit up on the top of it. And so he begins to inquire and he finds out that's where the God of the Jews lives. And so he goes up on that mountain and what does he discover? He discovers a flaming bush. And what's interesting about this flaming bush is that it's on fire, but it doesn't get burned up. It isn't consumed. So he goes closer to take a look at it. And from the 
the voice from the bush, a voice comes out and says, take off your shoes for where you stand is holy ground. And a conversation ensues between Moses and the God of Israel. God tells Moses that he's about to free the Jews and he's a little unsure of himself. And he says, well, if I go there and tell them that God sent me, they're going to say, well, what is God's name? Because they had forgotten what his name was. And so God tells him in Exodus 3, verse 14, and God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you shall say to the sons of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, I love this passage. If you think about the ancient world, they were very popular. They normally name their gods after something, the sun or the moon or a star or water or, you know, fertility or what have you. But God doesn't use a name like that. He says, I am who I am. In other words, there is nothing beside me. I'm everything that there is. Very impressive. Very amazing. And that is our eighth fingerprint, the name of God. And God tells Moses, he says, so I say to you, and I want, this is what he, I want you to tell Pharaoh. Let my son go so that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I am going to kill your son, your firstborn. Now, again, that's kind of strange because God tells Moses this before anything happens in regard to the death of the firstborn. And it's there so that you begin to understand that by Pharaoh's own standard of judgment, the Bible records that Israel is considered God's firstborn. And what did Pharaoh want to do? Pharaoh wanted to kill God's firstborn, so as a result, based on Pharaoh's standard of judgment, what was God going to do? He was going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn. And so the intrigue begins. Moses of Egypt, he begins to have discussions with Pharaoh, and he tells Pharaoh to let my people go. Pharaoh, the leader of the known world, the most powerful man on the earth, wants to have nothing done with that. He doesn't realize he's picking the wrong fight with the wrong God. <clears throat> Throughout the situation, Moses, or Pharaoh will, will tell him, is this God that I should worship him? I don't even know who this God is. Pharaoh worshiped a whole multitude of gods in Israel. And if the more you learn about the 10 plagues that happened in Israel through the Exodus story, you'll come to realize that every one of those plagues was an attack on one of their gods. So when Pharaoh says, I don't know who God is, God's about to teach him. It's not your gods and it's not you. It's the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> Finally, at the end of the 10 plagues, the very worst of the plagues happen. And that is the death of the firstborn, just as prescribed by Pharaoh. After the first nine plagues have become so unbearable for the land of Egypt, that basically if you don't stop, I'm going to kill all of your firstborn. And with that edict by Pharaoh, the angel of death, was released. Now, when the angel of death came, he was going to kill the firstborn of all the land, but God created a provision, right? And this will become our ninth fingerprint, the feast of Passover, whereby the angel of death will pass over you if what? If you have basically the entry to your home covered in blood. And so all Israel went and sacrificed the lamb and took the blood of the lamb, put it on the lentils of their doorposts, and when the angel of death came that night, none of them died. But in the land of Egypt, what happened? The firstborn of all the people, the firstborn of all the animals, all died. There wasn't a household that wasn't affected by the angel of death. And so that became so profound, this whole idea 
of what was going on that Pharaoh finally relented and he let his people go. <clears throat> the people of Israel journey a couple days out and all of a sudden Pharaoh realizes what he's done and he changes his mind. He's about to go back and attack and bring Israel back as his slaves. And so when God tells the people of Israel to go to journey back to Mount, uh, to Mount Sinai, he leads them through an interesting path. He doesn't take them on land, but he brings them up against the Red Sea. And when Pharaoh sees this, he realizes that their God isn't very powerful and he isn't very smart because he's backed them up against water. So here come all the chariots, all the armies of Israel to attack. And God sends forth the Shekinah glory, the pillar of fire, and it protects Israel from the advancing armies. But pretty soon now, this confrontation is about to get interesting because the fire begins to fade. And as the fire begins to fade, Pharaoh sees his opportunity to destroy Israel up against the sea. <clears throat> but now we're going to see our fine, final fingerprint. And to see this one, it's re pretty remarkable because you have to go back to the Hebrew to see it. You don't see it in the English. When you get to the story, what Moses says, as he's backed up against the Red Sea, he says, no, don't be afraid. He lifts up his hands and he's holding one of his staffs. <clears throat> and he says, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will perform for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again. Now, in the Hebrew, when you look at that, you probably know enough of Hebrew, right? If you're a little bit familiar with this, the name of God, the I am who I am, is the YHWH, the Tetragrammatron, right? The next word is the word salvation, and that name is Yeshua, so really, when you look at this in the Hebrew, what do you see? When Moses lifts up his arms, it isn't Moses who's parting the waters. When Moses proclaims Yahweh Yeshua, what happens? The waters part at the name of Yeshua. And that's our 10th fingerprint. So now let's review. What's the point of all this? The point of this is God puts fingerprints in his word, so that you can see his son. It's a great article of faith when you come to understand all of these things that are wrapped up in the story of who Jesus Christ is. How God embeds within the very stories of the Bible references and fingerprints of his son. In Romans chapter 15, it says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance, and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, the more you look at the Bible, the more you understand that, the more hope, the more faith that you will derive from them. Let's look and see if we can figure out some of these analogies. So in the very first fingerprint, we see the seed of the woman. Who's the seed of the woman? Jesus, right? You can cry out. We see that fulfilled. The one who gave birth to, to uh, Jesus was Mary. Who's Abraham? Who's he a symbol, symbol of? The father. Isaac, who's he symbolic of? The son. How about Egypt? What is, what's it symbolic of? The world, right? And what is Israel? God's chosen people. Who's God's chosen people? Israel and the church, right? The called of God. Who does Pharaoh represent? The leader of the world? The God of this world? Who's that? Satan. Who does Moses represent? 
The deliverer, who's the deliverer? Jesus. What does Passover represent? Shed blood on the cross, right? And what does the Red Sea represent? Salvation. In every one of these fingerprints, you're going to see the hand of God, right? Jesus was born of a virgin. He's the seed of the woman. In the second fingerprint, we have the bruising of the head and the bruising of the heel. Now, you don't see this one unless you ever get an opportunity to go to Israel. And if you get a chance to go to Israel, Jesus was crucified outside of the city gates in a place called Golgotha. And in the Gospels, it'll tell you that's called the place of the skull, right? Hopefully you can see the two eyes and the nose kind of in that rock formation. Up above that is where Jesus was crucified. And so if you see a cross with a beam and a cross beam, what does that look like? It looks like a dagger coming down into somebody's head. Jesus Christ at the crucifixion bruised the head of Satan. And what did Satan do in response? He tried to bruise his heel by putting a nail through him on the cross. The third fingerprint is the blood covenant. Remember that Abram and and, uh, the Lord did together? What did God say? Abram, if you and your descendants can't fulfill this, I will, what? I will die in your place. What does Jesus tell them at the Last Supper? He says, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Hopefully when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you'll look at that entirely differently. The fourth fingerprint, when God tells Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son. All of us are familiar with this verse, right? In John 3.16, for God so loved the world that what? He gave his only son, that whoever might believe in him might be saved. The fifth fingerprint, where was Isaac sacrificed? On Mount Moriah. Where was Jesus? Where was the cross? On Mount Moriah. Who carried the wood of the sixth fingerprint? Jesus did. He carried his cross up the hill, just like Isaac carried the wood for his sacrifice. What did God provide at the sacrifice? A lamb. Right? Who's the Lamb of God? Jesus, remember, John the Baptist said, the next day he saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our substitutionary atonement. All of us deserve to die and he dies in our place. Just like Isaac, he was supposed to be sacrificed, but he didn't. The parallels here are remarkable. Instead, God produces a substitute, a ram who was caught in the thicket for that sacrifice. In the same way, We need someone to die that we might have eternal life. And that's what Jesus provides for us. The eighth fingerprint, when when Moses goes before God, God reveals his great name, right? I am that I am. Interestingly enough, in the Gospels, we record seven times that Jesus will use that name. He will say, I am the bread of life. Say, I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, and this is kind of interesting, if you come on Sunday mornings at 9.30, we have a time of prayer. And Alicia leads that for us. And this morning, when she started, it made me smile because she said, I don't know if this has anything to do with what you're going to teach on today. Um, And she proceeded to read from John 15. John 15 starts out with, I am the vine. I am the true vine. 
You see the hand of God all the time, right? The ninth fingerprint is that Jesus would die on Passover. The tenth fingerprint, what does Gabriel tell Mary the name of the baby? She said in, in Matthew verse 1, 21, she will give birth to a son and you shall name him Jesus for he will save his people. His name means the Lord is my salvation, right? Yeshua is his name in Hebrew. Over and over again, God keeps telling us a story. The story is always about his son. Matter of fact, the closer you look in the Bible, the more you'll see Jesus Christ on every page. There was a scholar, his name was uh, Alfred Edersheim. He went through the Bible and he discovered 456 times where there were references about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now, if you've ever done any kind of crazy stuff, right, about the Bible, you'll discover that the, there's a probability behind every one of the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. In other words, what's the, it, the Bible will say that he'll be born of a virgin. What's the probability of being born a virgin? Zero, right? But from a statistical probability, you'd say like one in a trillion, right? And then it says, well, he'll be born in Bethlehem. So you say, how many people have ever been born in Bethlehem? You keep doing this over and over again, and then you keep adding up the numbers. The statisticians, I think you get to about 50 of them, and all of a sudden, the statistical probability of Jesus Christ being the fingerprint of God, the one that God keeps speaking of, is greater than all the atoms in the known universe, right? So when somebody asks you, why do you believe that Jesus Christ is God's son and that he died? Well, you can take that on faith. You can also take it because you've seen the fingerprints of God. Over and over again, he keeps telling us the same story. And interestingly, if you look in the, in the epistles of Paul, Paul says a very interesting thing. Three times he'll say this. In Romans chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 3, and in James chapter 2. And he'll say, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, over and over again, you'll find out that in the Bible, none of us are any good, right? None of us is righteous. But it is possible to be made righteous. And how is that possible? By believing what God says is true. And when you come to believe that, you can begin to share that with your friends and your family, right? Quite literally, through the story of Jesus Christ, you can help save the world. And that is what we're called to do. We're called to be the hands and feet of God, to be his messengers in a corrupt and lost world. We know as a result of this virus, there's lots of people who are confused. There's many teenagers especially, right, who've taken their own lives. We're living in a world that has, doesn't have a lot of hope. And yet, this Easter time, you have the opportunity to share with those around you and give them every reason to hope and believe. And I encourage you to invite them to church and share the gospel with them. Thank you.